Good morning, Redeemer. I think looking around here, everyone knows me, but on the off chance that there's someone here that doesn't know me, after all, I can't see all of your faces because you're wearing masks, and that's good, I suppose. My name is Terry Coons. I am on the pastoral team. Um, And yes, I know I spilled coffee down the front of me. That's already been pointed out to me. So... It's my delight to be able to share the Word of God with you here this morning, and um, yeah, so a little bit about me, Um, you know, as Donovan um, delights in sharing that I am the eldest elder on the staff of Redeemer, and I guess that's good, I mean, I, I mean, there's something to say about living this long, right, it's good that I have. And so I'll take, I'll take some pride in that. I will approach this scripture from that perspective, though, as being someone who's been around for a while, okay? I was born October 2nd, 1950. You can do the math to figure out how old I am. Uh, I've been around for a few years, and I've seen a few things. That's not to say that you guys haven't either, but I just want to share my perspective on a few things. The America I grew up in was a pretty cool place. 1950s, small town, rural, peaceful, pastoral, safe. Among the core beliefs that were implanted into my and my peers' psyche was that of justice and safety, that there was um, rules that you followed and those who broke the rules would receive a just punishment for it. That made the world safe for the rest of us. From our father's knees to the sermons at First Baptist Church to the morality lessons fused into us in the Dick and Jane reading primers of elementary school, we were assured that right would always prevail TV shows like the FBI and Dragnet and dozens of their like taught us that the long arm of the law would rapidly apprehend miscreants and evildoers and they would get their just desserts. Now, to be honest, in pastoral Iowa, we didn't see many miscreants. Um, In the early 60s when I was in junior high and then in high school, The big scandals were when a few of the bad boys would show up at the Friday night dances in the high school gymnasium with alcohol in their breath. Scandalous, I know. Our criminals were usually pretty harmless or, in most cases, pretty hapless. Let me give you an example. My senior year of high school, 1968, Uh, In the fall, one of the local banks decided to erect a new building, moving from kind of the outskirts of town, if if New Hampton had outskirts, I don't know, um, to right on Main Street, the prominent corner in town. And in the fall and early winter, the, the basement was dug, the footings was laid, the rebars were put in, and then uh, winter struck, kind of like what we see out here, and it kind of brought work to a halt. And so straw was put down to keep the, the ground, I guess, from, 
freezing up too much so that they could continue to work when the weather broke. Um, and people kind of backed away from it until the weather turned better. Well, before the weather turned better, one of my, um, I don't want to call him a peer because that would reflect on my character probably. Um, he was a year ahead of me in high school, so he was out of high school at that time. But this gentleman who shall rename nameless decided that he would have a little fun, and there was a, a fire hydrant on the corner of the street right there by that big hole where the bank was going to be. So in the middle of a cold January night, somehow he got a hold of a wrench big enough to open that fire hydrant. And in the morning, our local Barney Fife found the basement of this new bank building filled with water. Only it wasn't water at this point, it was froze, solid ice. Not a small problem for the builders, right? Got to remove the ice, you got to extract the straw that's, that's now sodden and frozen in there, clear all that out, dry it out before you can begin. And it was such a mess and so expensive that the local authorities um, decided to put out a reward. And I don't remember how much it was, it probably wasn't a whole lot of money, but it was enough money to induce this gentleman to turn himself in for the reward. <laughs> That's the kind of criminals we had in my hometown. <laughs> so, you know we had a pretty idyllic life in that pastoral, small Iowa town. That caliber of crooks and, and um, kind of the living off the fat of the land uh, lifestyle or existence, we felt, well, as my dad had a saying, fat, dumb, and happy. We were living, no offense, we were living the good life. And um, you know what? I, I've got to steal an illustration from just about any other speaker that stood up here and preached. You can't go through a sermon without some reference to The Hobbit or to, um, to C.S. Lewis's Narnia uh, Chronicles. It was like living in the Shire. You know, that's what it was like. Easy living, a lot of fun, no pressure, fat, dumb, and happy, as my dad said. But there were some cracks that began to show in that idyllic lifestyle somewhere around junior high age. Now, there were, they were cracks, um, forces from the outside of the Shire. For example, in 1962, I remember setting in in junior high, and we had televisions that we used to take Spanish lessons for, but they were all tuned in to the major news outlets because the Russians had just been discovered putting nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba, 90 miles off the coast of Florida. And so our young president went eyeball to eyeball with Nikita Khrushchev for seven days, and the world stood on the brink of nuclear war. Now, in junior high, we had no idea what that meant. We had some drills, actually, about what to do if the bomb fell on New Hampton, which the bomb wasn't going to fall on New Hampton. There were plenty of, plenty of other high-value targets. But we had some drills on what to do. I don't know whether they would have been effective. I don't know whether crawling under a desk would have saved us or not. But, you know, it was what you did. And we all kind of considered it a joke. But at the same time, you know, it was kind of one of those first steps into adulthood where you're going, wow, the Shire isn't quite as safe as it used to be. 
A year later, that young American president was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And that's the first time I remember really being shook by national events. From that point on, uh, things got very complicated in the mid and, well, the next president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, oversaw the, uh, the growth of um, a war in this backwater country called Vietnam that bled uh, America dry in so many ways. The blood of thousands of young men, the natural resources that went into the weapons of war, countless civilians that were killed, and the bleeding of innocence. Now when it first started blossoming, everybody in, my, in the Shire said, yeah, you know, our country, kind of right or wrong, you know, we'll support this because our country doesn't do bad things. We don't do wrong things. We are in the right. We're the guys that wear the white hats. But as we grew up and as the conflict went longer, it became harder and harder to really tell who was wearing the white hats and who were wearing the black hats. There's a lot of conflict over that. 1968, the year that I graduated, was kind of the, um, the highlight of the countercultural revolution that took shape around the war in Vietnam, um, social justice issues in the cities, um, some other issues, um, In April of 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And good portions of almost every American city were burnt to the ground in riots. Um, in June of 1968, Bobby Kennedy, the young president's brother, who had been assassinated in 1963 as he was conducting his own presidential campaign, was assassinated. April 4th, or uh, November, excuse me, August of 1968. The Democratic Convention in Chicago was racked by violence. Demonstrators and the violence that was exhibited there made what happened on January 6th of this year look like a picnic in the park. And this young 18-year-old boy was trying to figure out who's wearing the white hats, who's wearing the black hats, what's up, what's down, what's right, what's wrong. And uh, I wasn't the only one. I think millions of my peers were trying to figure that out as well. And then it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. You know, since I graduated from high school or moved out of the Shire, you know, we've been rocked by many other similar forces. The Arab oil embargo in 1973 that made dinosaurs out of the big block muscle cars that if you guys haven't ridden in a 1968 road, Plymouth Roadrunner, then you haven't lived yet. Um, farm credit crisis of the early 80s literally eviscerated uh, vas- uh, the family farms, the AIDS and Ebola crisis of the 80s, Iran-Contra affair, Chernobyl, 
a nuclear reactor melting down and spewing radioactivity in the air. The list goes on, the Gulf War, the World Wide Web. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. The end of the Cold War with the USSR, the advent of global terrorism, hurricanes by the dozens, earthquakes, floods, forest fires, the Oklahoma City bombing, the budget crises, financial collapses, recessions, scandals, schoolboy violence, the slaughter of innocents in schools, movie theaters, shopping centers, and outdoor festivals, 9-11, and the resultant military conflicts that we are still fighting today. You know, by the time you reach my age, you begin to realize that things are not cut and dry. The Shire is not the same, if it ever was. Maybe in our boyish innocence, the Shire was just a figment of our imagination. But the sense of safety, whether from isolation or economic security or political stability, or military power was on shaky ground. And you know what? Nothing's changed today. The life that I have lived is the life that you're living too, and you've been subject to maybe a shorter list than I have, but a list nevertheless. Just in one year, 2020, that infamous word, 2020, has opened our eyes to how insecure we really are how we're not sure whether justice will ever prevail because we really don't know who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. And with that, all that said, we come to today's passage, Isaiah 51, 9 through 23. And so let me give a little context to this. You know, we've been in this series on Isaiah for a long time. And Donovan assures me that once we finish it, we're going to start it up again. That's a joke, by the way. Um, but when this, is, this passage was written either right before, right during, or right after the Babylon, Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. The residents of Jerusalem had either been dealing with a siege and the starvation attendant to it, or the humility of having the walls breached and being drug off to slavery and uh, leaving behind all that they knew. It was their 2020. So let's take a look at Isaiah 51. We're going to take this, uh, take a trip down memory lane, because not my memory lane, but God's memory lane. First thing I want to, I want to uh, talk about is who's writing this at the time. Verses 9 through 11. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, as generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sign shall flee away. Who's writing this? Is it the... 
Is it the people on the street crying out to God, Wake up, God, wake up, God, how could you allow this to happen to us? Don't you remember who you are and what you've done? Or was it God saying to himself, Wake up, time to go to work, got things to do, been there, done that, can do it again. Or was it the prophet who was actually speaking the words of God saying, you know, using a literary um, technique, you know, talking about himself and about what he has done in order to make his point. And I think that's it. You know, let's take a look at verse, um, verse 9, the second part of that verse where um, the prophet says, Were you... Not, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now, Rahab um, is used a couple of ways in the Old Testament. I'm not talking about the woman named Rahab in Jericho. Um, I'm talking about Rahab as an allusion to a couple of things. Rahab was often uh, alluded to as a dragon or a beast, and that beast was associated with Egypt. And so um, the prophet is reminding his listeners that, you know, it was God who brought you out of Egypt. A little further on in verse 11 or verse 10, was it not you, God, who dried up the sea and the waters of the great deep, who made depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? He's alluding to the, the redemptive work of God for his people out of Egypt. But that's not the first time that God has slain Rahab. I'm not talking about um, things like um, God calling Abram out of Iran, or I'm not talking about um, the Tower of Babel, or any of that other stuff. I'm not talking about, um, you know, the Great Flood. I'm talking about way back in the beginning in the garden. You see, the word Rahab in in, in the original language actually means arrogance or pride. And it was arrogance and pride that had Satan cast from the heavens. And it was arrogance and pride that Satan stoked in our original fathers and mothers that called them to sin and caused them to be expelled from the garden, tainting every subsequent human being with sin upon birth. But God broke the curse of sin in the garden. He's cut up Rahab. He's crushed his head. So we can jump ahead many, many millennia and see that done on the cross. But God has, has one foot in the creative moment of history and one foot in the consummation of history. And in his eyes, it's been done from the very moment. God is reminding his people of what he has done for them already. The psalmist kind of sums this up, gives us a good insight into it 
in Psalms 89. Let me read you a little bit of this. The psalmist cries, O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging seas. When waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. You're strong, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Now there's quite a contrast between the, the, um, the song of the psalmist here and the experience of the inhabitants of Jerusalem at this particular moment. The psalmist is talking about the, the strong arm of the Lord active and at work on their behalf and the joy and the security, the justice and righteousness that flow from all of that. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people. Well, the people of Jerusalem were not feeling blessed at that particular moment in time. And so the prophet is saying, wake up, wake up. Jerusalem, not God. You've been asleep. You've forgotten what God has done for you. Remember his feats of old. Remember what he has done. This is a wake-up call to faith, not a wake-up call to God. Remember you redeemed of the Lord. Remember your history. Remember your God. Remember His history, His story. And then you'll come dancing into Zion. Yeah. Then you'll come dancing into Zion. with singing, everlasting joy, gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You need to remember, bro. Get with the plan. Verses 12 through 16, the Lord himself was speaking. If you notice, there were apostrophes there marking the Lord himself was speaking. The Lord is speaking. I am he who comforts you. Why are you afraid of men? You, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? I just told you I am the one that crushed Rahab. I am the one that opened the oceans before you. I am the one that crushed Satan. And I am the one that comforts you. You have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth 
and yet you fear continually all the day. You know, one thing that I'm struck in our current situation is the, the level of fear that is being experienced in our country. And I'm not talking about the unredeemed, I'm talking about the redeemed. I mean, what else can, what else can motivate people to carry flags with the name of Jesus on it up the stairs of the U.S. Capitol and inflict violence and destruction in the name of Jesus? This can only be fear. I, don't, I can't imagine Jesus at the head of that mob. People are afraid of the virus. People are afraid of vaccinations. People are afraid of masks. People are afraid of their neighbors. People are afraid of their government. People are afraid of people who look different and talk different and dress different than them. People are afraid that their jobs won't be around. That their economic security is, will go away. They're afraid. Afraid of everything. A shadow frightens them. Should the redeemed be afraid? The people whose God crushed Rahab, whose God split the ocean before them so that they could walk across on dry land? The prophet is saying, you have forgotten the Lord your maker and focused on the oppression. Yeah, bad things are happening. Bad things have been happening on through history. The list that I gave you was literally only, what, 40, 50 years. And yet, how long has man been treading the face of the earth? There's always been trouble. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. He didn't say it might be, could be. You will. It's a promise. It's a fact. Trouble is going to accompany us no matter where we are, what we do. There's always going to be trouble. The real key is how do we react to it? How do we respond to trouble? Well, our response, if we focus on the trouble, will be troubling. It'll be troubling. Verses 17 through 23. Wake up to the reality of God's wrath, the prophet is saying. Or actually, God is saying at this point. Wake up. It is you, Jerusalem, that has been slumbering, not the Lord. The wake-up call is not for God. The wake-up call is for you. And Paul issues the same kind of wake-up call to the church. In the New Testament, in the 13th chapter of Romans, Paul is talking about this very same thing. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Church, begin to act like the church. We just, said, we just sang a few moments ago, I am no longer a slave to fear. We have to live that way. 
Your slumber has cost you. You have been sleepwalking and you have stumbled into trouble. And in your sleepwalking you have drank deeply from the cup of squirrels and shiny objects. You have invested heavily in things of this world. You've put your faith and trust in governments, in economic systems and military might, employers, teachers, and institutions of higher learning. And they're not serving you well at this point. And it has not satisfied. Instead, at best, it's left you uninspired, unproductive, directionless, and diminished. And at worst, it has left you anxious, alarmed, bankrupt, and broken, church. Your slumber has turned into a nightmare. The shire has become Mordor. But here's a promise in verses 21 through 23. The Lord will remove from your hands the cup of his wrath and put it into the hands of the oppressor, and they will drink. You, you know, he likens what you have been experiencing to you drinking a cup of trouble and you drinking it to its dregs. In other words, you drink it all down. There's nothing left. You take your finger, you wipe it on the inside, and you lick your finger. It's all gone. It's inside you. It's all trouble. But the Lord says, I'm going to remove that cup from your hands, and I'm going to put it into the hands of those who oppress you. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that if you're a Republican, he'll put, it in, put his cup of wrath in the hands of a Democrat? If you're QAnon, the cup will pass to the Antifa. If you're a masker, it will pass on to an unmasked. What does that mean? Who is your oppressor? Well, I don't know who your oppressor is. Oppression comes from many different directions. And oftentimes, oppression is more something that's imagined than real. But I don't even want to go into that right now. What it means is justice and mercy will flow like a river and that the faint-hearted will be revived, that peace will reign even in the midst of trouble, that tears will be wiped away. Ultimately, the scales of justice will be balanced. This is the promise of God. This is the promise of God that's crushed Rahab, that's opened up the oceans before you. You know, um, I'm reminded of Jesus' last night on earth. He's in the garden with his bros. And he's praying, and he's praying so hard, the blood's dripping from his forehead. And he says, oh God, if it possible, will you, can you take this cup from me? What's he talking about? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath that he's about to drink on our behalf so that we don't have to drink it. So that we can give it up into the hands of the Lord who will apply it justfully, justly to those who deserve it. I'm not smart enough to know who that is. I don't think any of us is, but God is. And can we trust the one that laid down his life to take that cup out of our hands, to put it into the right hands at the right moment? This isn't a promise for peace on earth, at least not, a, not in the short term, because we will, as I said, have trouble. 
But we don't have to drink that cup. That's our choice. We drink the cup when we forget. When we fall asleep, we wander around like drunks. And we pick up the cup. We focus on the trouble, the oppression around us, and we go, that's our choice. And God says, wake up. So what are some practical considerations? You know, the promise is that we will come rejoicing into Zion. Gladness and joy and all that stuff. But it's contingent upon us waking up. We're not going to stumble into Zion. We're going to be led by the Lord with wide eyes. We're going to go dancing. I can't even dance, but I'll learn a few steps by then. You know, um, there's a song that we sing around here called uh, Fount of Many Blessings. So It's an old hymn. It's been around for a long time. Second verse of that goes, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Does anybody have any idea what they're singing when they sing that? So this is the first practical consideration I'd like to suggest. <laughs> Who the heck is Ebenezer, right? Are we rean- reanimating Ebenezer Scrooge? Nobody names their kids Ebenezer anymore. I'm pretty sure of that. I googled um, the most famous, 25 most famous Ebenezers in history. The most current one I could find was born in 1942, Ebenezer Obey, a Nigerian juju musician. Evidently, he was pretty good. Everybody, he was an outlier. Everybody else named Ebenezer was born in the 1800s or earlier. We're not talking about a person. We're talking about a stone. You see, um, in Samuel 7.12, there's a a passage where the prophet Samuel set up a stone between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. He set it there because the Israelites had just won a great victory over their arch enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines who had been bedeviling them for generations. And they whacked the snot out of the Philistines. And Ebenezer said, we're going to put this rock here so that we remember what God has done for us. And we have many instances in the Old Testament if we read discerningly where Ebenezers are raised. Maybe the most uh, familiar one is when the, when the twelve tribes returning to the promised, man, cro- promised land crossed the Jordan and a a representative of each tribe took a stone from the Jordan and put it in a pile, 12 stones on the uh, west bank of the Jordan as the Israelites moved to occupy the promised land. And the reasoning was that in generations to come, when you walk this way with your children, and they go, what's up with the pile of rocks, Dad? You can tell them. The Lord has been faithful to us thus far. 
See what the Lord has done. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have an Ebenezer? Do you have a pile of stones? I'm not asking you to cast an idol, but is there something that you have that can remind you thus far the Lord has helped me? Maybe it's a picture. Maybe it's a song that just takes you back to those moments when God has moved in miraculous, powerful, loving, intimate ways on your behalf. Maybe it's a relationship, a friend, someone to help you shake off the slumber, to help you remember what God has done. I just want to encourage you, do what it takes to remember. And if you don't, if you If you don't have anything to remember, then maybe today is the day to start remembering. Start something to remember. You know, a week ago, we had a little training here on evangelism. And we were encouraged to work on our personal testimonies. And, um, you know, short little 30-second blurbs or whatever. This is what I was before Christ. This is what happened. Um, This is what my life is like now with Christ. Do you have your testimony? Have you thought about if somebody asked you to give an account of the hope that you have in Christ, do you, do you have something that you can tell them that's coherent? I want to encourage you to spend some time. What if somebody asked me why my hope and trust is in Jesus Christ? What would I say? It's a tremendous opportunity to remember some of the some of the most um, the word words like exciting um, come to mind when I talk to people and I begin to tell them my story being around seventy years going through the things that I've gone through and and my searching took ugly turns in those seventy years I've done a lot of things I'm not proud of. But I'm also so thankful that God's pulled me out of that. And when I start remembering and I start telling people my story, I mean, I, I'm excited, I'm rejuvenated. It's like the Lord all over again is saving me. It's that kind of experience as I remember. And I want to encourage you. If there's, the long arm of the Lord stretches from the moment God spoke the word and the big bang or the big hallelujah occurred to, well, in the words of the famous theologian Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond, right? There's no end. See, I I, I moved on from the Shire (laughs) to Toy Story. (laughs) If there's anything I would like you to do is to remember, don't forget, don't fall asleep. It's dangerous. Drunks get killed all the time. And, uh, but there's great joy. There's great power. There's great peace in marching into Zion with everlasting joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, you're so good to us. You're so faithful even when we are not faithful ourselves, when we're faithless. 
You are at work always. You are at work for good always. And even though the times are troubling and even though the times have always been troubling, you have always been at work for good. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, we believe that you're at work for good. Maybe someday we'll see it in this life and maybe someday we'll, maybe we'll just have to wait for the next for it to all make sense. It doesn't matter. Maybe when we get, when we march into Zion with everlasting joy, it won't matter to us. But Father, would you continue to remind us of your hand at work to provide significance and safety and joy. That's the only place we can find it, Lord. Forgive us for looking for love in all the wrong places. In Jesus' name, amen.